John chapter 20. Verse 23 says, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. There are a, uh, a plethora of examples of those in authority abusing their status and their power for personal gain. And the thing is, you even know some of the names. They're in politics, entertainment, finance, and even in the church. I could just say a name and you will immediately associate it with some sort of scandal or abuse of power. Harvey Weinstein, Richard Nixon, Jeffrey Epstein, almost every former governor of the state of Illinois has served jail, served time in jail for something or other. And I could name prominent pastors who have used their authority for personal gain as well. And they're not just the goofballs like Jimmy Swaggart or Jim Baker. There are preachers, even in our own tribe, so to speak, who have done considerable damage to those under their care. Preachers whose ministries have had influence over even some of us in this room. It's no surprise if I throw out some of the names. James McDonald, Mark Driscoll, Josh Harris, Tullian Tavigian. The list could go on and on and on. And then there are the small church pastors, small church elders that no one's ever heard of who do the same thing. They abuse their preaching authority for shameful gain. They lord their authority over those under their care. And so when Paul wrote to Titus, and he called him to appoint biblically qualified elders in every town along the island of Crete, one of the things that he said to him was this. This is Titus chapter 1, verses 9, 10, and 11. Paul writes of the potential elder. He says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also able to rebuke those who contradict it. And then he goes on and says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. The last 2,000 years, there have been those who have twisted Jesus' words in this verse today, in John 20, verse 23, in order to accomplish their own ends. And I'm going to be so blunt as to say that the biggest offender of this, of course, historically speaking, has been the Roman Catholic Church. This is what offended Martin Luther so much, as well as the reformers who followed him. This is why they would even refer to the Pope as Antichrist, largely because of the selling of indulgences, selling of forgiveness of sins, basically, among other reasons, many other reasons. In fact, the Second London Baptist Confession, published uh, around 1689, chapter 26, article 4, actually says this, The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. 
By the Father's appointment, all authority is conferred on him in a supreme and sovereign manner to call, institute, order, and govern the church. The Pope of Roman Catholicism cannot, in any sense, be head of the church. Rather, he is the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, who exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. The Lord will destroy him with the brightness of his coming. That is strong language. But it's also biblical language. It reflects the Bible's teaching. Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 6 says this, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Strong language coming straight from Jesus. We should understand there in Matthew 18, 1 through 6, he's not talking really about children. He's talking about those who would humble themselves like that child and come to him for salvation. And whoever causes those believers to sin face grave consequences. Now, having said all of that, I believe the tendency of some of us might be to be suspicious or even reject any kind of church or pastoral authority. I have no doubt that there are many who attend churches in general, who have problems with authority and and believe that no one has any right to tell them how to live their spiritual lives. But the scriptures say otherwise. And yet we need to avoid the two extremes, right? On the one hand, overstepping or even abuse of authority. And on the other hand, we also need to avoid the rejection of, of a biblically instituted authority. So let's read this passage that we've been working through, John chapter 20. I want to read verses 19 through 23. We started this last week and we stopped at this last verse, which we're going to dig into this morning. John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let's just stop and pray here. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear today. Help us to understand your word. I pray that um, I would decrease and that Christ would increase in our hearts and in our minds, Lord, that we might understand what you would say to us here in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it's really important before we go any further to remember that verse 23 falls in the context of, of Christ appearing to these disciples. 
So John wrote these verses to prove that Jesus had physically risen from the dead. That's his purpose in writing this. He tells us this explicitly at the end of the chapter. Just jump down to the last two verses of chapter 20. He said, now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the purpose of this book, the purpose even of this chapter, of these stories, of this account, is to drive you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So John is saying this, throughout this section especially, John is saying Jesus rose from the dead. He first appeared to Mary Magdalene. You can read about that in verses 11 through 18. Jesus rose from the dead. He first appeared to Mary Magdalene. Then she came and told us, John being one of the disciples. That night, as verse 19 picks up, that night we were gathered there and and behind locked doors and suddenly he was in the room with us and he came with four messages messages. This is what he said, what we looked at last week. Christ appeared to these disciples and he came preaching. He proclaimed four important truths for the church, for all who were his disciples. Now again, we we went through the first three last week, and if you weren't here, I highly recommend you go back and listen either on the website or the YouTube page. Let me remind you of all four, and then we're going to just look at this last one. The first message that he came was the resurrected Jesus Christ came preaching peace. Peace be with you, he says. Then he gave a preaching commission. So as the Father sent me, so am I sending you to go and preach peace through Christ. He granted preaching power in the giving of the Holy Spirit there at the end of verse 22. And then he bestows a preaching authority in verse 23. So preaching peace, preaching commission, preaching power, and a preaching authority. And it's also very important as we consider this, especially as we consider verse 23, it is important to understand that the authority that Jesus gives here in this verse is is in the context of the commission to preach, to go and preach the gospel, to go and bring the good news, herald the good news to the nations. Remember, he sends us as the Father sent him to proclaim that good news, to preach peace with the Father through the Son by the Spirit. It's also important to remember who is present here, who who is in this room behind locked doors and who's not. We know that Judas is no longer among them. He's probably dead by this point, committed suicide. We also know, we can see from the next section of verses, that one of the other apostles, Thomas, is also not there. So Thomas isn't there, and Judas is not there anymore. We believe, it's likely, that Mary Magdalene is probably there. She had been with them earlier in the day. This is the end of the day now. Verses 18 and 19 kind of explain that. She's probably there. We believe from the other uh, gospel accounts, probably some other of the other women who had followed him are also there, as well as those two unnamed disciples from the road to Emmaus. We don't know who they were, but they were probably there as well. And maybe there are others, for example, Matthias, especially if you line up this with what happens in Acts chapters 1 and 2. 
But here's why this is important. Because we believe that this commission, this power, this authority is not limited to the apostles. Now, the apostles have a specific authority, but Thomas isn't even here. So we believe that what is happening here in this verse is directed at the church, at the assembly of the saints. And so we can come to certain conclusions about this. First, A, the proclamation of peace is only true for the church. The proclamation of peace, peace be with you, Jesus says to these gathered saints, that peace is only available to the church, to those who are in Christ. You know the bumper sticker, no Jesus, no peace? No Jesus, no peace? You know the bumper sticker? That one's actually true, right? No Jesus, no peace. The second thing that we can see here, um, the second conclusion that we could come to, is the commission to go and make disciples is a commission that's given to the church. That means it's not, now hear me carefully here, that means it's not necessarily an individual mandate, but rather the body as a whole is to specifically send those who are gifted and qualified, we see this throughout the book of Acts, Send those who are gifted and qualified. However, every member should be active in some way. We see this again as this plays out in the book of Acts. Some give financially, support through uh, money, some through prayer, some through being active in the church and gathering together. The commission to go and make disciples is for the church. And the third conclusion that we can come to is that the spirit-driven power to preach is given to the church. It is a gift for the church. And then finally, D, this preaching authority is also given to the church. And this is where we find ourselves today. And here's why I'm stressing the church Throughout last week and this week, the church, the church, the church, we believe that the Bible clearly teaches that there are, there are three realms of authority that God has established, right? There's government. Government has certain realm of authority. We believe that God established government. We believe that the church has a certain realm of authority, and as does the family. We believe that each realm is specific, and each realm carries specific authority. I don't want to get too far down into this, but let me just say basically so that you're tracking with me. Government is instituted by God for protection and to punish evildoers and lawbreakers. So essentially military, police, court systems, as well as regulations for health and safety, and we could even argue things like road construction, okay? Government responsibility. Families are instituted by God in order to reproduce to provide and instruct, to care for one another, and for training in righteousness. But it's church authority that we're seeing here in verse 23. And so we need to understand the nature of this authority, the extent of the authority, and the foundation of the authority. So let's begin with the nature of this authority, because that's really what Jesus is getting at here. The nature of authority. This is a gospel authority. This authority begins and ends with the gospel. Look at that verse again, John 20, 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, I want to make this part very clear as well. 
This is not about absolution. No pastor, no priest, no elder has the authority to absolve a person of their sins. That right belongs to God alone. King David understood this when he cried out to God in Psalm 51, verse 4, in repentance, when he said, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Did he sin against other people? Yes, many other people. But God is the only one who could forgive. God is the only one who could restore All sin is first and foremost an offense against God, and therefore only God can forgive. Let me give you another example. In Mark chapter 2, as a paralyzed man is lowered by his friends through the roof into a crowded room where Jesus was teaching, right in front of Jesus, and he's lowered down on a mat, Verse 5 says this, Mark 2, 5 says, And when Jesus saw their faith, that is of those lowering him down in, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. How did the Pharisees respond? They said this, it's verse 7, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus doesn't dispute that. He doesn't dispute their argument. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Instead, he simply proves that he was God in the flesh by saying to this man, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. He proves that he is God. Only God has the authority to forgive sins. This is true, and Jesus proves this by proving that he is God. And of course, the resurrection that we're talking about here in John chapter 20 is the ultimate proof of this. That Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. So what does he mean here in verse 23? Well, he clearly states that this is about the forgiveness of sins. And as I've said several times, context is important. So Jesus comes preaching peace. He sends them just as he was sent. And he gives them the Holy Spirit to empower them to preach the good news. And so what this means is that the church is given the authority to declare the terms by which people may know that their sins are forgiven or not. Think of it like this. You don't have authority in any, in any real and meaningful sense to walk up to someone on the street out of the blue and say, your sins are forgiven. You don't have the authority to say that to people. Saying it doesn't make it true, right? Um, The same is true for me as a pastor. I I don't have any authority in myself. I I don't have any authority even in my office as an elder of the church to say to you, I hereby declare your sins are forgiven. See, that authority comes from somewhere else. It's a gospel authority. So, So let's put this together. According to Scripture... When is a person's sins forgiven? It's not when I declare it. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 makes it very clear. Verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
We can't just declare that we have no sin. We must confess. We must repent of our sins. And then Christ will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Remember his proclamation in Luke chapter 24. He says this, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Repentance and belief in the gospel. This is the truth. And, and what did Paul tell Timothy was the pillar and buttress of the truth? The truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repent and believe that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the truth. What is the pillar and buttress of the truth? It's the church of the living God. The church is given gospel authority to declare the terms by which people may know that their sins are forgiven or not. How may we know? It has to start with repentance of our sins and belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It has to begin there. We have to run from our sin and run to Christ, and then we may know. Let me show you how this authority kind of plays out that we're talking about here. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. Jesus and his disciples, he's been teaching them, they've been traveling. And in Matthew 16, uh, beginning in verse 13, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Th those keys that binding and loosing language. Think of chains and shackles. The church is given the authority to proclaim, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Blessed are you, Chad Lump. Blessed are you, Landon Moore. What does blessed mean? When we proclaim these things, blessed by God, saved forgiven based on that profession of faith, that confession, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Based on that confession of faith in Christ, the church has the authority, Jesus is saying here in chapter 16 of Matthew, to proclaim that your sins have been forgiven by God. The chains have come off. The shackles have been removed. This works out practically in your baptism. Baptism is the church, led by the pastors and elders, affirming that you truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
You believe as Abraham did under the old covenant in Genesis 15, verse 6, and he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. You are a part of that covenant of grace. And just as Abraham was given a a sign and seal of God's promise in circumcision, so are Christians also given a sign under the new covenant in Christ. Romans chapter 6 verse 4 says this, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is where the authority to pronounce your sins have been forgiven is seen in baptism. You are dead to sin and raised to walk in newness of life in Christ. But Jesus also gives us here in John 20, 23, the authority, he says, to withhold the forgiveness of sins or more literally to retain forgiveness, to hold it back. What is the nature of this authority? Well, we see this in the only other place that Jesus uses that language of the keys of the kingdom, along with that concept of binding and loosing in Matthew chapter 18. So just flip over there. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. Jesus uses that same language, the keys of the kingdom and the concept of binding and loosing. Let me read these verses, Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. This is that famous passage on church discipline, on dealing with unrepentant sin in the church. And just notice there, what Jesus calls an unrepentant sinner at the end of verse 17. He says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Gentiles were anyone who were outside of God's covenant people, right? They were not Jews, they were Gentiles. They were outside of God's covenant people. And the tax collectors were technically part of the covenant. They were part of God's people, They were Jewish, but they were always seen as doing damage or betraying or hurting God's covenant people. They were friends with the world. And so this is where that other sign and seal of the covenant comes in. I hope that you can make this leap with me. I'm going to explain this. It's the Lord's Supper. This is the regular church-wide renewal and reminder of the new covenant. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus said. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord's Supper to remind ourselves that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, there's more to it than that as well. But this is what we do. And so participation in the supper 
is the church together in communion. That covenant proclamation proclaiming we are his people and he is our God. We are in covenant relationship with one another and with God. But this is also that time when occasionally the church has to say to those unrepentant sinners from Matthew chapter 18, those who have gone through those steps that Jesus outlines there and have refused to listen even to the church, the church may then say to them, you're either a Gentile or a tax collector. We can no longer affirm that your sins have been forgiven. In fact, you're, you're either a Gentile or a tax collector. You're either outside of God's new covenant people altogether. Or at the very least, you're, you're betraying and damaging God's people. Hurting God's people. This is the warning that Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians, one more verse, verse chapter 11. Turn over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Listen to verse 27. Actually, I'm going to read 27 to 32. Listen for this warning. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This is a warning of judgment. We're called to discern the body there. You're called to discern whether or not you're a Gentile or a tax collector, regardless of whether or not the rest of us know, frankly. This is why we ought to stress church membership, formal church membership, actually coming to the elders and saying to them, please keep watch over my soul as those who will have to give an account because of these warnings. Because of these warnings that the Bible gives us. That's what this is all about. When Paul talks about some being weak and ill and some have died, he's actually not talking there about those who have gone through that, those steps of church discipline, the, the steps of Matthew chapter 18 and, and rejected repentance, although it could certainly be true of them. He's talking about those there who think that they're getting away with their sin, sins that nobody else knows about. He's talking about those in the church who are not really believers, they're Gentiles or those who are betraying or damaging the church. They're tax collectors. And this really brings us to the extent of the authority. Flip back now to John 20. 23 again says this, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is where we can kind of get into the theological weeds a little bit, um, especially as we consider that phrase from Matthew, the, the keys of the kingdom and who it is that was given those keys. But it should be clear as we read these passages together, um, especially the Matthew verses in conjunction with this verse here, John 20, 23, it should be clear that the keys have been given to the church, that this authority has been given to the church, the assembly of the saints, and it has to be the local church. 
It has to be the local church. See, the Roman Catholic Church believes that the keys were given to Peter, and then they have been passed down through each pope. And we can see that as, frankly, ridiculous. Especially when we consider that the authority that we're talking about is the authority to baptize believers based on their profession of faith and and to invite repentant sinners who are trusting in Christ to come to the table, take, eat, and so proclaim his death until he comes. This has to mean that this authority has been given to the local church. To declare that your sins have been forgiven is the work of the local church, the church to which you belong, the church that knows you, the church that sees your repentance, the church that sees you stumble and fall and helps you back up, the church that administers the sacraments, the the ordinances of baptism and communion, which are things the assembled church does together in person and in fellowship. Therefore, each local church has authority over itself. Each local church is autonomous. We have no hierarchy here. Um, There are no bishops. The head of Logansville Community Church is Christ. And Christ has given the church certain gifts with which to govern itself Um, Under his ultimate authority, which we can know through the word of God and the Holy Spirit who guides us in our understanding of his word. That's John 14, verses 25 and 26. But he's also established an organization in the church made up of deacons who, by definition, serve, work to meet the physical needs of the church. So think of Acts chapter 6. And elders, too, as as. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Elders are commanded to shepherd, to pastor, to exercise oversight. And among those elders are those who specifically labor at the task of preaching and teaching. Which brings us to Hebrews chapter 13, the other passage about authority. Verse 7 says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Those two verses are the most terrifying verses in all of Scripture for me. And Steve. The extent of any pastor or elder's authority is in keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Now, I want to be clear to point this out as well. Every church member has a responsibility and authority as well. Listen to Galatians chapter 6 verse 1. Paul tells the church at Galatia, he said, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. 
Or think of James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. James writes, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. This means that as the church, we have a responsibility to lovingly care for the souls of one another. That means that if we see any church member caught in any transgression or wandering from the truth, or as Matthew 18 says, sinning against you, we're to go to that person in gentleness in an effort to restore them, to save them, to bring them to repentance. That's why this is a gospel authority. Because left to our own, I don't know about you, but I would define away my sin. Right? Oh, that's not, that's not, that's not sin. God just made me like that. Look at what so many churches are doing with certain sins right now. Defining them away. Homosexuality. Abortion. Fornication. The gospel says that if you are unrepentant in your sin, then forgiveness is withheld. And we have the authority to say, don't come to the table. Don't come to the table. Repent of your sin so that you don't eat and drink judgment on yourself. This is the most loving thing that we can do. To say, don't come to the table. If you're stuck in any transgression, if you have given yourself over to any sin and are wandering from the truth, don't come to the table. But repent. This brings us really to the final point, and that is this foundation of authority. Foundation of authority. We could also say that this is the process or maybe the method of authority. This point really has been woven all through the sermon. I hope that it was understandable. But the point is this. Jesus said to the church, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This has to do with what many churches call the ministry of word and sacrament. It really brings us full circle. Jesus came to them preaching, preaching the gospel, preaching peace be with you, peace in Christ alone. He charged us with a commission to preach that message of peace in Christ alone. And just as repentance and belief is the work of the Spirit, so actually is the work of preaching. This preaching authority that we see here in verse 23, it's done by carefully ministering the word and sacraments. In other words, if we are faithful to God's word, proclaiming the truth, baptizing and coming to the table in a way that is in accordance with the scriptures, then the Holy Spirit will use that to guide us in all truth and to build us up in him. And so when Christ said, I will build my church, when he said those words to Peter and the others, he said it that it would be built on a, on a rock, the rock of the confession. And the method, the, the process, the foundation of this is through spirit-empowered, authoritative preaching, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And this is the final authority, the word of Christ. 
And so if you believe, I want to be clear about this. If you believe, if you have trusted in Christ for salvation, if you have examined yourself, as 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, and you're not a Gentile, but you are a believer, and you're not sinning so as to hurt the church like a tax collector, you are seeking to live repentantly, then come and eat and drink. Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And remember the promise of the new covenant, the promise that is true and that we wait for with eager expectation, the promise as Ezekiel prophesied, my servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd and they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers live. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. And John finishes his revelation with these words. He who testified to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Dwell with your people forever. And so we say this morning that if you have trusted in Christ for salvation, if you are seeking to live repentantly, seeking to walk with the Lord, putting to death the sin that so easily entangles us, casting those things off, then come to the table and eat and drink and proclaim his death until he comes. Renew the covenant with him, the covenant in his blood. Let's pray. Lord, these are weighty matters and hard to understand. It's hard for us to accept authority because we are rebellious at heart. Father, we come to you and we submit to you. Father, we pray as John prayed, come quickly, Lord. Not because the circumstances around us are so questionable, so difficult to understand, so um, disconcerting. Lord, but because we want to dwell with you forever. We want to be done with sin. We want to be done with the effects of sin in our world and in our lives. We want to be done with death. We want to be done with sickness. And we want to be with Christ forever. Father, we want Jesus Christ to wipe away our tears. We want him to dwell in our midst that we might see him face to face. And so we pray, come quickly, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.